Hello and welcome to this week's TES Magazine Debrief Podcast. We're talking about the 16th of July's edition of TES and you've got me, Warnia Hallahan, joined by John Severs. I've been relegated to just guest this week and I'm completely fine about it. And Dan Worth. Hello. Let's get started. Now, so often in education, we raise lots of questions and those questions raise more questions. And we end up questioning the questions and fretting about how many unresolved questions there are. But you can't levy that criticism at our cover this week, where Mark Roberts, English teacher and general expert on all things masculine, poses what some might say is the boy question. What do we do about the boys? Now, John, as a former boy, did you see yourself in the descriptions in this piece of some of the students and their, their difficulties? I don't know if Mark wants to be described as an expert in masculinity, but, you know, I've never met him. You've met him. I have, and that is how he introduced himself to me. He said, hello, I'm Mark Roberts, and I'm an expert in masculinity. (laughs) Um, I'm going to be honest about this one. I find it quite uncomfortable. I I think Mark's written an excellent feature, but I find the the boy-girl split uncomfortable. And I think it's because there's so much now around gender and that, as a publication, we are so careful around gender. So, um, uh, you know, in all honesty, it was a bit of a uh, a leap of faith for us, this feature, to see how how the schools reacted to such a, you know, a hard split on gender. But then you read Mark's piece and, and, and the stats do speak for itself. You know, there is clearly a, at a general population level, a, a problem in the sense that boys are lagging behind girls with no genetic reason why that might be. So it's 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 it is an issue that needs to be addressed. And whether you believe in the the hard gender split of boy girl or not, the the stats tell you that boys are lagging. So what Mark does is say, well, let's have a look at why this might be. And what it definitely isn't is is something to do with innate boy traits or um you know, or and it does isn't fixed by playing to boy stereotypes, which was a big relief for me. But what it does say is that there are fundamental differences in whether they are cultural or whether they are some other element of the environmental raising of boys, where they 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 fail to be motivated in the same way as girls, and a lot of that is down to self confidence and uh, use of metacognitive strategies. So I can't say it was familiar in answer to your question eventually. I, it was a bit of a media-trained answer there. I got to it eventually. I, I was sort of, as I've said before on this podcast, I, I, I managed my attainment in secondary school to, to, to present a certain view of myself. I, I, may, I wanted to be around the B just under an A area, and I managed to do it most of the time. And so my underattainment wasn't a motivational factor, really. And I didn't, I, I didn't have a lot of self-confidence issues academically, socially, plenty, um, but academically not. So no, but I do recognize a lot of what Mark says in Friends and, and others. Not you, Peter Whelan, who, who listens to this podcast religiously. I'm not talking about you, Pete, so please don't text me. Dan, do you recognize it more? Um... Well, yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? I, I do, I think. I think I look back to my school days and it's anecdotal, I know, but I think the culture, the boy culture, definitely 
would have inhibited a certain level of attainment success or, or effort. Were you uh, a boys' school? No, no, but I just mean the boys generally, like certainly the kind of sort of my friends, you know, we all tried well at school. Doing well at school was, was a good thing. It wasn't a school where, you know, you, you sort of doing bad, doing well was, was frowned upon. But I do think some of the ways we behaved, some of the things we did, some of the, the, the time we spent, what we chose to do with, with our time was, was not going to be academically beneficial in the way that I, th- I look back and I perceive how the girls worked in school and worked in lessons and, and sort of applied themselves even more. And I imagine if I sort of, if that were to be true in every setting to a certain extent, I can see why you do get the disparity in grades. And I do think there's probably things around like physiology of how people mature, at what ages they mature, what sort of things are driving hormones at different times of different years of school that possibly do make girls more adept at, at learning to a, to a certain degree. But again, I, I, I equally agree that you can't just broad brush it into it's everyone. It's all boys are the same, all girls. And of course, there'll be differences. But I do think, and I think what, what, what in the piece, the bit that stood out to me was about, about overconfidence and getting used to getting teachers like score boy, yeah, boy pupils, if that's the right way of saying it, on their confidence. They perceive their confidence on an answer, or on a subject, on a topic, and then seeing how they do. And I think that I can definitely recognize that sort of sense of boys, you know, myself and my friends, you know, all real know it alls and all sort of like scoffing at the teacher if we thought we knew something better than them or whatever, or didn't feel that we needed to read, read the passage, whatever it might have been. And then, you know, being made to look a bit of a fool when you realise you got it all completely wrong. And that that's a sort of something that just happens, I think, more to boys at that age, at that teenage years, they become a bit, they have to know it all, they have to be a bit brag. And I think if you can sort of, in a nice way, if you can sort of show them like, well, actually, you said all that and you've, you've given nine out of ten on knowing this and you got three out of ten on the test, you know, you do need to spend a bit more time studying. And maybe that sort of humble moment actually sends them away to their bedroom to do a bit more revision, a bit more studying, a bit more whatever it is. So on the day of the exam, hopefully that overconfidence hasn't, and led them down the wrong path of not revising enough. That reminds me of a student I once had who um, would insist that he he knew he knew how to write an essay. He knew how to do well on the exam. He used to always moan, why aren't you teaching us harder stuff, miss? Because we can do all this. And then we'd done a few assessments and he kept performing badly. And there was this moment in parents' evening where we're like, look, Charlie, I know you say that you think you can do it, but look at this. He goes, you know, do you know what, miss? I think... I don't think this is a coincidence. I think actually, no, I do need to, I do need to listen. <laughs> Revelation. It was like this horror on his face, like, actually, no, I think you're right. I think I don't really, I should really listen about how to structure my essays. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I think, I think you're right after all. I was like, mm, yeah, I think I probably was, Charlie. But, you know, one of the interesting suggestions that Mark makes is about that tightly scripted models, which he asks the students to work from. And this reminded me of last week's chat where we had about cheating. Now, I appreciate some people find these modelled answers like just a bit too much and they say it produces artificial sounding essays. But with so many ideas, it's all in the execution, isn't it? It's about how we do it. Like done well, picking the right sentences with the right balance of your own words and scripted, your own words versus scripted words. Like you do give them the tools to give a better Mm. answer. Well, also that you said cheating there, but it wasn't cheating. It was teaching to the test, which is very different things and i think you know um we you're right i don't see the harm in that i don't see the harm in in, in providing certain phrases and things i mean obviously you're right of course there's gonna be a line it's like everything there's, there's there's subtleties but i think you know and maybe boys benefit that from that more maybe that helps them more because it gives them something to focus around rather than just like you say going for 100 miles saying, i know all this i know all this is like okay but if you've got these little key phrases that get you through that bit in your head i mean i don't know it's, it's a very difficult one i mean i bet you most teachers well, no, I say that, I bet I'd be interested to hear what 
like anecdotally what other teachers say about this. Like your experience at parents' evening, I mean, did you have any similar stories with with um, with any girls like that? No, gosh, I didn't think that that's what you're going to ask me. No, I've never good ever question. taught a girl like that. That's a really good question. I've never ever taught a girl who had that problem. I've taught girls that are that typical, like underconfident, didn't rate themselves enough, mm. thought that they couldn't do it. I had one girl once that learned loads of really complex vocabulary and she thought she was really good at English because she needs lots of unusual words. Stamp that right out of her. <laughs> um, classic, classic journalist who goes on to work for The Guardian. <laughs> that is her future but she was lovely she was really good she just um needed to understand how to use complex vocabulary it's not just like learning their definitions you need to learn the usage rules as well but that's like a silly little thing generally it's um it's definitely more of a masculine trait but I think some of the descriptions that Mark has in his piece yep I did nod along but I think there is that element of what's the mix of boys and girls in the class and that can massively change if you've got a really boy heavy class you tend to find that those traits are more exacerbated, like it's more prominent. But the less boys you have or the more balance between boys and girls, it doesn't seem to be so much of a problem. So I think I'd be really interested to hear, not just teachers generally, but specifically I'd like to hear from teachers who teach in all boys or all girls school and what their experience are. And to hear like whether those strategies are things that they they use. I mean, we've got to do something. The boys are three times more likely to be permanently excluded. That's not, that's not a stat we can just ignore. We have to do something about it. And, you know, this you, um, is the answers. Didn't you write something, or we're going to write something, about whether education itself is gendered? Building this into a bigger picture, whether because it's a female-dominated profession that male behaviours are... are anomalized or, or, or and it's not just female heavy it's female it's successful female heavy the sort of teachers that become teachers are the sort of girls that really enjoyed school and were very very conscientious and often found the behavior of more boisterous members of the class male and female but those that were more disruptive and more off task they would have found those irritating didn't really interact with those sorts of people so and the boys that do go on to become teachers are typically the more conscientious type, the more more likely to partake in the the um, lessons, et cetera, et cetera. So, is there something about the way that schools are organised and the subjects that we teach and the way that we teach them that, in itself, is disadvantaging young boys? There's a fascinating uh, study by a teacher in Bath, one of my first visits, and he's still doing this at Bath Spa. But he was looking at how male teachers adapt their behaviour to to a female dominated environment. And found that in his early studies, and I don't want to, I won't mention it or, or try and scoop him because this is still ongoing research, but he found that men go, that aren't themselves. That's the headline. So men aren't the same person in school as they are out. And the second one is they either heighten their alpha male traits. So they become very flirty, very, you know, overtly physical, or they very, they feminize their behaviors so that they become one of the girls essentially. And it's a fascinating piece of research. It was in primary schools, which tend to be, you know, you tend to be the only man or a few men uh, in, in, in primary. But I think, you know, Mark's piece is a really, really good practical outline of how you can tackle the attainment gap on your data sheets between boys and girls. I think there's a philosophical, cultural, environmental argument that sits above that, that probably at some point you're going to write, Gronya. <laughs> well, I was going to say this, I mean, surely we can't, well, what we're aiming for here, like 50% literally the same, 
Because that's, I mean, is that ever going to happen? Or does the, does the day when the boys' score go above the girls' score, we then immediately flip the other way and go, oh, what's going What's wrong with girls? You know, what are we going to do about the girl academic gap? And girls course, did. Girls did underperform for years and years. This isn't, it hasn't always but, been the boys. Well, that's interesting. So did they, did, did things happen to, to fix that? So when they introduced coursework, that's when we saw the switch to girls performing better than boys. Ah, right. Well, that, that... I think that's right anyway. What, 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 why did you make that face, John? I, I just, that surprises me, right? Because the coursework argument is that there was cheating and you'd, hang on a minute, I'm going to be sexist, so I'm going to stop talking. So I was about to say you'd expect boys to cheat more than girls. And the idea is that girls are better at, at seeing um, long-term goals, so they're more motivated to do coursework. So they try to, yeah, see, now you're nodding because you know that's what boys do. So boys would be like, it's fine, I'll leave it to the last minute. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get a cram it all for the exam. It doesn't matter. This, this is ages away. Why are we doing this in year 10? What's the point? And typically the idea is that girl, the thinking is that girls did better on coursework because they were able to see the value in doing things in two years' time because right. yeah. they can see they're more goal-orientated. Do we need to put a disclaimer on this that we're, we're, we are aware of the wider gender debate, but for the purposes of this feature, we are talking specifically about boys and girls. You know, I've worn, my, I've worn a rugby top today to, specifically to balance that out. I think that helped. <laughs> but overall, what we're saying is Mark's feature is excellent. It's really practical. That's what I love about it. it you're going to leave that feature with some really practical things you can do if you're looking at your gender attainment gap that don't involve uh, teaching Shakespeare through WWE wrestling. Yeah. So do check it out and see if Mark's suggestions would work in your classroom. Okay, right. The next piece today is my choice and it's my piece again. I'm backing myself and picking my own piece as my favourite in the magazine. And I'd love to say that I went through my 10 years teaching with never a crossed word with a colleague, but sadly that isn't true. Even if you work, not with, surprised. A, <laughs> even if you work with the loveliest bunch of colleagues you could ask for, there will be times when tempers will be fraught and crossed words are said. Or this can be worse, nothing is said and you have lingering, festering, simmering rage and that isn't good either. So my piece is all about how do you resolve staff fallouts? And when I was interviewing people for this piece, one leader shared with me a really good story and I wasn't able to include it in the piece itself, but I thought I'd share it with you here. So this teacher started school as a middle leader and joined a department where an older member of the department who had been at the school for a very long time and had no responsibilities was just near retirement. And, you know, they'd been at the school since it opened. It taught the grandchildren of their first children. You know, you get the idea. And this person was this really sweet older lady. And, you know, she'd knit during meetings. She'd make cakes from home and bring them in but she was an absolute tyrant, like would reduce new staff to tears. She insisted on having only six one class on her timetable and would have, you know, tantrums until she got what she wanted. Um, she wouldn't share her classroom despite being part-time. She wouldn't share sets of books. Her data was always late and she'd been allowed to get away with it for decades. And this poor guy had come in, had to be her line manager. In their first staff meeting as a department, she threw a glass of water over the person leading the meeting. She disagreed with their moderation comments on a fo folder from the previous year. And they had this huge staff turnover because she made people's lives really difficult. And the head had tasked him with sorting it out without actually sorting it out because he said she was near retirement. What he wanted him to do was to get all the rest of the department to put up with it with minimal fuss. And of course, you know, that's impossible. And what's really interesting is that this leader said it made him realise what a tiny proportion of his job 
was picking books and designing schemes of learning. He couldn't do any of that until he got his team right. And it was really hard, but in it, it taught him that prevention is better than cure. It's about putting in smoke detectors, not sprinklers, and trying to be firefighting all the time. So the piece goes through some suggestions. I talked to different leaders, some really good experts about how to, how to deal with this in your team. But Dan, work bust-ups, have you ever seen any good ones? Um, yes, I've not really had any myself in terms of what you just described there, in terms of actively people. I mean, I, I've worked with some very bad people, um, but not, I mean, what you described there sounds slightly chaotic. Um, I mean, and obviously so. But yeah, I don't know, a difficult one. I, I understand that that point of when someone's there and they've been there for too long and no one's ever dealt with the problem and like that idea of you need to nip it in the bud at the first instance um, rather than letting it go on and on and on. And then, it, then it's too difficult because then, then they sort of perceive that they're good at their job because they've been there for so long and then they and they sort of know who to butter up and who not, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So it's difficult, isn't it? But I think somehow you have to try and find that middle ground and I think it comes down to somewhat comes down to managers and, and how they sort of mediate that. And I think sometimes though, personally, I sort of feel like there's always a line where the world of work and the world of just humans being humans, the two can't work together. And some people, for whatever reason, are just really difficult or odd or strange or aggressive or have you know problems that they bring into the workplace. And there comes a line where it's like all the best human resources or management training won't solve that problem you know and it's really it's like a social thing that that person's probably as difficult out in the, the, what, the social world as they are in work or maybe not but do you know what I mean it's like it doesn't matter how good your policies are you eventually some humans will just kind of go out of just a, a sort of you can't put them in a box and you can't deal with them normally and I've, I have worked with people who just I didn't know I was like why why are you behaving like that like I don't understand I can't comprehend what to do about this and every sort of attempt at sort of saying something sort of okay there it's like but you're just creating a drama out of nothing kind of thing. And it's hard to explain without, you know, can't really explain the specifics. But anyway, so yeah, I sort of feel like there's lots of good management things you can do in this. And the piece does cover those some really nicely. I also feel though, like that line management situation described, it sounds like that person was being, was put in a far too difficult position. And that should have been, you know, but I don't know how you deal with that, right? That's so weird. That's such an odd situation. I don't think we always have an answer to those situations. And I think if you are in that situation, it's incumbent on yourself to sort of recognize that and think, you know what, I'm, it's not my job to fix this or I need to go above you know, someone else needs to take responsibility because I can't do this. And that's not a failing at all. No. And I think sometimes those people you describe who are really, really difficult, you can put them into a different team and give them a different role. And suddenly it's that their behaviour changes and they're no longer the person that they were before. And it turns out it's not really them. It's the the response to the situation that they're in. And maybe, that's maybe. I really think, difficult because you can't always change that. You don't always have that no, flexibility totally, you can't, to go, exactly. here you go, you can do this now. Now you'll be a happier yeah, person exactly. and you you're not going to be yeah. difficult. Yeah. And, and, and I, think that's, I think you're right, but I also think some people that won't work. They will, Their true colours will always be to be aggressive or diffident or rude or sarcastic or that kind of stuff. And, and you know, that's them. That's, that's them. They, they, they shouldn't be doing that. And they need to... But, but we, all, we, always, we always work... It's like a thing is it's like, it's like victim blaming type of thing. Like we always try everything else. Like you say, like, oh, let's find them a new job. Let's move them to a different department. You know, like, like, no, it's like, no, why don't you say to them, your behavior is out of line, unacceptable. You know, you need to change or you will be asked to leave. But I've, I've seen it firsthand and what, that's not what happens. They say to you, what could you do to make his behavior more acceptable to you? It's like, why should I? Why should I? I'm not the one causing a problem here. You know what I mean? And that, that's genuinely what happens. And it's just like, not good. That's why I like um, and controversial klaxon here. We need to get we need to get a controversial klaxon. 
that's why that's why I think restorative justice has got a lot going for it and restorative practice. But I think the restorative justice does exactly what Dan's just raised as a really difficult thing. It's that it's almost gaslighting, like, mm, yes, they've done this, but what can you do to make yeah. it better? I don't I think that's a misunderstanding of restorative justice. That, that's when it's practice. done poorly. The thing with restorative yeah. justice is in the wrong hands, it's dreadful. When it's when it's done well, it's, you know, obviously it's completely yeah. different. But it's the damage that's done when it's done poorly, and it frequently is done poorly. That's when it ends up in that sort of toxic. But yeah, I've got to say, I mean, it, 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 there are times when it works, and times it doesn't. But like in situations I've been in, in professional situations, if someone said to me, "You've got to come to a meeting and sit across from this person, and you've got to sort of offer up what you will do differently, or what you can understand, or what you," and I would just say, "I haven't." And it's and people listening might think, "Oh, nonsense! It takes two to tango." But I would just be like. I haven't done anything. I've turned up to work to do my job and I'm getting this relentless, passive-aggressive, you know, undermining, undercutting, odd comments. You know, I can't, it's not, I can't print off an email where someone said, you're, you know, swearing at you or whatever, but I could try and articulate this kind of relentless, small, great. But if someone says to me, so what are you going to change, Dan? What's your behaviour change going to be in this restorative? I'd have have been furious, you know, because I was like, this is not me. But I do understand there is a place for that as well. I'm not not dismissing the idea. I think it's the skills. I think it's the... From, from the examples I've seen in schools where it's done really well, that person has to recognise the damage they've caused. Yes. And at the moment, there's a, there's a midway between you're on detention for calling Gronia a cheat. I'm being very mild. You probably won't get a detention for that. But, um, and, um, and, and saying, what can you do to stop Gronia being a cheat? I think there's a, there's a midpoint there, which is, you know, um, recognize the harm you've caused, and I think it's helpful for that for that person. In the example I saw, which was amazing, there was an actual physical fight, and the kid hadn't really thought through the implications of hitting that other child until it it was really spelled out in a restorative way, rather than a Christ, let's call the police. Why the hell have you done that? It was a very calm, with parents involved meeting, and. The fallout of that was really positive for for all involved. So I think yes, restorative practice done bad, and and behaviourist approach is done bad. But I think there needs to be an upskilling of everyone to deal with awkward. That's interesting because in the piece I spoke to Philip Styles, and he's the senior lecturer in corporate governance at Cambridge Judge Business School, and he's the co-director of the Centre of International Human Resource Management. Like he's the expert in this kind of negotiation stuff. He's the man you'd want to talk like talk terrorists into backing down. And he said some really interesting things. He said that you can't focus on winning and losing, which is like what you're saying, isn't it, John? Like this idea of trying to restore it. And essentially both sides need to feel like they've won. And if you want things to go on in the future and and like be and be calm and be collegiate and you know return to like a sense of normality in your team, you can't feel as if you've lost and you've also can't have that. If you've got a person who's desperate to feel like they've won, who's actually got like a personality disorder and and that has that need to like dominate people, then that's really, really difficult. So I think all of these ideas are are useful and it it works, but isn't that tricky? And how fragile are we as humans to always need our ego to be preserved? Like you think that we're the adults. You talked about children who've fallen out. We're adults. Teachers, you know, you'd think that we'd be above it, but the truth is we're all really susceptible to that kind of pride, pride wounding. We're worse. <laughs> I swear adults hold a grudge worse than, than kids do. Like, adults never forget. 
Okay, right, so do have, a read, do have a read of it and let us know if you have any good tips for handling tricky work fallouts. Finally, from conflicts between people to the conflict we feel when we're faced with something tricky, something tough, something perplexing. I'm now showing off my vocabulary here, Dan, because there is a word we cannot say. Yes, absolutely. Now, so this is a piece by Charlotte Noon in the Growth Mindset Required section of the magazine, which is always um, a thought-provoking area. And she talks about a really interesting thing about how she sort of took something that she she was sort of told about on a course. She took it into a classroom and that was to not use the word difficult to describe something as not to describe something as difficult, but to describe it as unfamiliar, which it's a very simple thing, isn't it? But it actually, if you think about it, that is exactly right. Because if you say, oh, I can't do this, it's too difficult. It's just giving up language. It's, it's saying, I'm no good at this. If you say, I'm struggling with this, it's unfamiliar to me. That's like an acknowledgement of like, well, that's why I'm not very good at this. But if I can just keep going, it will become more familiar. And she says that you know, to, their, to their pupils, you know, you, you couldn't tie your shoelaces before because it was unfamiliar to you. But now you do it without even thinking because it's familiar. So it's not really about difficult or easy and those kind of words that, that can make put people off. And it's like, you know, it's like you shouldn't, I think I read a thing a while ago, that like you should never say to someone, oh, oh, it's easy, don't worry, you'll get it, it's easy. Because then when they can't do it, they think, oh, what's, what's wrong with me? This was, I was told it was easy. But we know it's easy because we can do it. So we perceive it to be easy, but it wasn't easy to us when we started. So you have to sort of try and say, it's not easy, but you can do it through repeat effort. And, and again, she says, they try in her classroom, they don't use the word try or they try not to use the word try they use the word do i will i will do a good essay not i will try to do a good essay now obviously that i suppose you could say well then if you don't do a good essay you've sort of got to say to someone yeah you haven't done a good essay when you said you you know they said they would and all that kind of stuff but i think the point is clear that just that little subtle rephrasing of a word or a mindset change or whatever it might be can, can really sort of open things up and she says this thing that she, that she was was said told to and she made her think that yeah, actually she's right i should say it's unfamiliar to myself not it's difficult because the two things are very different, aren't they? But they have the same, they work in the context of learning a new skill. It's really interesting. I've got a friend who, um, well, I know somebody who I used to teach with. Did you just downgrade someone from friend to acquaintance? Yeah. (laughs) You went, went, I've got a friend and then you went, "Mm, are they a friend? And then you downgrade them. So if they're listening, they... They'll know who they are. Oh God. They deserve this. So... um, (laughs) No, they I'm it. joking. Um, they've got this this philosophy that with their child, they won't ever say, like, well done, you did that was a good job. They will only ever praise efforts. And I think the trouble with that is exactly what Dan's just described there. Like you you get fixated on like, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try, and like the, the idea that the the how much effort you put into something is more important than the outcome. And actually, like the outcome matters doesn't it? Like it's, it's nice mm. to feel like, you know, job well done. That's, you know, we can feel, we can take pride and be pleased with the, with the, with the fruits of our labor. It's not always about effort. And sometimes you've put loads of effort into something, but you've done it poor, like the execution, something faulty in your, your, mm. um, your approach, then that was a bit silly, wasn't it? We should, we should praise outcome and outcome is an important thing to focus on. That's why I don't like, I wrote this in my lead the other week, I don't like the notion that anyone can be good at everything if they just are taught properly. I find that really like uncomfortable because there's, there's an expectation there. It's like you were saying, if, well, if you don't, if you're not good at it and you were taught, well, what does that, where does that leave you? And I think it's unrealistic to think that everyone's going to be interested in everything. You just have to teach it properly. I think that notion's most, and it's coming from a lot of teachers, but I think the notion is really damaging for teachers. 
because it is putting all the responsibility for learning on a teacher and taking away a pupil's agency for learning. And I think we just need to be a bit careful with that narrative because it's one that the government and Ofsted would probably love to seize upon. Um, you know, oh, well, this, well, this child's got a level four, so you haven't taught them properly. Well, I know actually the context of that child is quite complex. Oh, no, you said good teaching every child is, you know, we've got to be careful about the stories we tell ourselves. And I think that this features, you know, I love this feature for that reason in that it does, it is about language and it is about diplomacy, really, in a way. It's about how can we communicate better? And I think that is, a, it goes back to all the features we talked about actually today, which is at its core, it's about communicating better. Um, yeah, 100%. You're, you're absolutely right. And that is, that is, that's what it is, isn't it? It's that practical thing in the classroom. If the pupil is struggling or, or not, or whatever it might be, just sort of rephrasing their thinking or re, you know, re-angling their thinking through a simple word, a simple phrase, a simple sort of try it this way, you know, or let's describe it like this, whatever it might be, can, can work wonders. But also sometimes it won't and it just, the people just won't get it. And that's no one's fault, is it? Some things mm. just don't, don't work for some people. And it might be the brilliant best teacher in the school, but for that one people, they're just like, I don't, I don't like this. I don't get it. And I don't, I don't need to get a kind of mindset almost. Yeah. And also like not fearing stuff that's tricky. So, mm. you know, all three of us, we all quite like sport. We all, we all do sport in our, in our spare time. And when I take my girls and we go running and they'll say, oh, my legs hurt. Like, oh, mommy, my, my legs, my muscles are really hurting. Like, Isn't that brilliant? You're working really hard. Mm. And now... I say, get on with it. We're not, I'm not carrying you home. There's two <laughs> options. You sit on your own or you run home. And now they'll say it back to me. They'll be like, my legs are hurting. I'm running really fast. I'm like, yeah, you are. And it's... And I think we do it as adults, like, don't we? When we're when we're training, and we think, "Oh, no, that was really tough today," but we feel pleased about the effort we put in, and we should have a similar attitude to work. When things feel hard, and then we do eventually get it, that's a good thing. That's not a scary thing. Just as soon as it gets tough, it doesn't mean you give up. And I tell myself that every time I get stuck when I'm writing something, I start checking Twitter. And that's fine. <laughs> no, don't do it. Don't do it. Keep going. Work through the hard bit. Work for it. Yeah, exactly. That's a good, a good, uh, positive place to end. It is. So that's all for this week. And I hope you can join us next week. Have a good week, everybody. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.